Well, amen. In 2010, a gentleman by the name of Eric Raymond wrote the following. He said, Kathy Lynn Grossman, writing in USA Today, insists that guilt is not a joke, but rather that it's essential. Grossman observes culture at large and then peers down into various religious systems to understand and deal with guilt. She talks to secularists, Jews, Roman Catholics, Lutherans, Mormons, and even evangelicals. The consensus is that guilt is real. It is a fiber of our psyches, says one university psychologist. Neither Grossman, the religious leaders, nor the man on the street would argue that. The Mormons said that they are guilty for not doing everything that they are required to do each week. The Roman Catholic was guilty for not raising funds for charity. The Jews celebrate Yom Kippur. Others speak of the moral end and of how guilt is the provocation from the conscience that leads us to do or say something that others, uh, to others and make it right. The sum of what we have here then is guilt is unavoidable and really unassuageable. And the question then is, what do we do about it? The best you can do, he says, is try to respond in a way that makes you feel better. In this sense, guilt is kind of dangerous and thorny. This is really hopeless and not very helpful. As a Christian reading this article, I was disheartened that I did not read of someone proclaiming the diagnosis and answer to guilt. Of all questions to be put on a T for us, this is it. There was an evangelical in the midst of the article. I'm not sure if he was edited or not. But from what I read, he did not come anywhere near Jesus. But we do have something to say, he writes. We do have an answer. The bottom line is that we feel guilty because we are guilty. Of course, he goes on. The article's a little longer than that. But the last sentence struck me. The bottom line is we feel guilty because we are guilty. It's really quite profound because what he says is that the emotion of guilt comes with and cannot be separated from the state of guilt. The the two go together. As a matter of fact, realizing that our state of guilt, realizing our state of guilt not only determines how appropriate and effective we are in managing our emotional guilt, it more importantly, as I said last week, makes the difference between life and death. It makes the difference between forgiveness and wrath. And it makes a difference in dwelling in the presence of or in the absence of God. And our text tonight makes that clear. So really, that's, that's the title of the message tonight. Realizing our guilt. And our text is Leviticus 5, 14 through 6, 7 that Wes read a few minutes ago. And you can find an outline in the back of your bulletin, the note-taking guide. We're going to look at four things tonight. The violations, the ramifications, the stipulations, and the implications of the guilt offering. 
And before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, would you, by your spirit, allow us to appreciate the richness of your story of redemption, of which you have graciously made us a part. Grant us eyes to see and ears to hear Jesus, the one to whom this passage points. And may we be changed from the inside out. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, like the sin offering we looked at last week, there are specific sins or offenses or violations that um, that called for the guilt offering to be given here in verse 14 of chapter five through verse seven of chapter six. And the Lord, or the Lord and Moses put these into three categories. Uh, the first category is found in verses 14 to 16, and they are described as breaches of faith that are unintentional and involve the most holy things of the Lord. Now, breaches of faith is interesting. It means that they are acts of unfaithfulness. They are acts of faithlessness against the Lord, who is their covenant partner. It's a violation of the covenant. And while the phrase could be used for every sin that we commit, because every sin is a violation of the covenant, it's specifically used here And in the third group that we'll look at in chapter 6, because these sins that are named are specifically against the Lord or His name. And and we'll, I think we'll understand that a little little better as we move through the chapter. The sins are not only breaches of faith, but they're also, like we learned last week, they're unintentional. They're accidental. They're committed in uh, ignorance. They're committed unknowingly. They're committed due to neglect in, in some way. And there are also sins that involved holy things to the Lord. They involved things that were the Lord's property. They were things that had been set apart for Him. They had been set apart for His holy use. And so we're talking about things like tithes and offerings and sacrifices, utensils that are used in the tabernacle and, and things like that. And so, for example, we can look at it this way. Someone may not have given a full 10%. In their tithe because they had miscalculated how many bushels of grain they had harvested. Or it might be someone who during a fellowship meal after the peace offering unknowingly ate something that was supposedly or was supposed to be set aside for the priest. Or they could have been in the tabernacle and having already offered their sacrifice, they could have walked by something or reached down to grab something else and touched a dead animal that had been used in somebody else's sacrifice thus rendering them unclean. But all of these things were happening and and they did not realize it. Or maybe they even took a utensil home from the tabernacle and then used it and then thought, I shouldn't have done that. So these are unintentional sins. And it really makes a lot of sense when you consider, and I was talking to someone this week about this, the sheer number of sacrifices that took place every day. We're not talking about an area that was quiet and calm. It's not like the DMV where everybody is sitting in their chairs nice and orderly waiting for their number to be called. We're talking about animals being held, chaos going on, blood being spattered. Is it any wonder that unknown sins were committed? And the Lord makes provision. And as we said last week... Just because they were unknowing, uh, we did those or they did those unknowingly didn't mean they were not without penalty. Ignorance was not bliss. 
So the second group is found in verses 17 to 19, and they are simply described as things that ought not be done. And they too are unknowingly. And so because there isn't, as we see in the passage, in this second group, there is not a description of the restitution that must be made. So because the restitution isn't described there, we can assume that this person didn't know that they committed the sin. They can't remember if they committed the sin or not. And there's nobody around to see if they committed the sin and to gently remind them that they had committed the sin. So what we have in this group are those who are, think, are, are thinking to themselves or are feeling, they might have a feeling of guilt. Their conscience may be saying, you've sinned. They don't know if they have or not, but something, a provision was made that they could go and be forgiven of their sin. The third group is found in chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. And these are sins, unlike the first two groups, these sins are intentional They are sins of deception. They involve cheating. They involve stealing from and oppressing a neighbor. And most importantly, they involve lying um, and using the Lord's name to do so. Examples are, are here in the text. Someone may have given a friend something as a down payment for something that they were going to purchase. Or they may have given something to a friend to hold on to while they were away. And they return to to finalize the deal Or they return to pick up what they had dropped off for safekeeping and neither are there. And the person says, well, I don't know what happened to it. Or someone may have found something that had been lost and a friend comes and says, hey, did you find whatever that was? And they say, no, I didn't find it. All all the while knowing that they had it at the house. Or it could include, um, well, in those situations, we've got a he said versus he said or he said, she said situation. And so many times in situations like those, they would simply have to make a vow of innocence. And so they would vow and they would use the Lord's name and I vow and I promise in the name of the Lord that I did not take anything, or I did not find anything, or I did not cheat, I did not steal, all the while knowing that they had. And so that's why the Lord calls these breaches of faith. They're breaches of faith because the Lord's name is taken in vain in the midst of this. Again, a covenant violation. So the question is, well, we think through those and we think of the examples that are given. We say, well, what are the ramifications? What what are the consequences of these sins? And what we've seen throughout this, if you don't mind, I'd like to just go back briefly. But as we've seen throughout our study, sin results in a number, uh, a number of different consequences. We could say that sin has several aspects to it. They all are experienced, all of the aspects are, are experienced by us for every sin that we commit. And so let's look at a few examples. For example, we know from the burnt offering that any sin, active or passive, intentional or unintentional, resulted in separation from God. God could not, or God would not, because He could not dwell with unholy or unclean things. The chasm was too great between that which is holy and that which is unclean. And so something had to be done. So something had to die. Blood had to be shed for that separation uh, 
to be ended, for there to be reconciliation. The peace offering included a reminder of the atonement uh, because it was a blood sacrifice, but its primary focus wasn't on reconciliation. Its primary focus was on fellowship or communion. It took the relationship that had been restored a step further. It was one thing to have the relationship stored and dwell in the presence of God, and it was another to fellowship with Him. It was another for Him to actually meet with His people. It was one thing to have access, and it was another, and and presence, divine presence, and it was another to have fellowship with Him. So the peace offering was an offering of wholeness, of complete acceptance, and through the peace offering, uh, not only, well, through the peace offering, the Lord was not only present with them, but, but meeting with them. Then, in the sin offering, again, being a blood sacrifice reminds us of the necessity of the atonement. But its primary focus was on purification. Sin had defiled. Sin had contaminated. Sin had polluted both the individual and the tabernacle. And so the, tabernacle, the individual and the tabernacle, primarily the tabernacle, had to be purified. And so it was through this sacrifice that that decontamination and purification took place and provided for the need. Well, here in chapters five and six, we have another aspect of sin. Again, we have the blood sacrifice, but the focus is on guilt. The focus is on guilt of the sinner. When God's law is broken, there is a declaration of legal guilt that is pronounced against the individual. When we sin, we are pronounced guilty. And it's justifiable. And there is an obligation that is created. That debt, that guilt that we incur must be paid. God is just. And payment must be made for that debt that has been incurred. Restitution must be made, as we'll see in a minute. So the guilt offering is is more about satisfaction and reparations and restitution. I want you to listen to how one commentator has summarized these offerings as a whole. He said, the sacrificial system... Therefore, presents different models or analogies to describe the effects of sin and the way of remedying them. The burnt offering uses a personal picture of man as a guilty sinner who deserves to die for his sin and of the animal dying in his place. God accepts the animal as a ransom for men. The sin offering uses a medical model. Sin makes the world so dirty that God can no longer dwell there. The blood of the animal disinfects the sanctuary in order that God may continue to be present with his people. The reparation or guilt offering that we're looking at tonight presents a commercial picture of sin. Sin is a debt which man incurs against God and the debt is paid through the offered animal. So there are a couple of ways or a couple of things that could have happened as, as we read this text. One is that the individual, in some cases the individual was feeling an emotional guilt... And that brought them to a place of identifying the state of their guilt. And they needed to come and make the offering. The other case would be that they knew that they had, they had committed a sin. They knew they were in a state of legal guilt. And that led to the emotional guilt that comes with it. And of course that too led them to make the sacrifice of the guilt offering. And there were two stipulations. There were two things that must be done. 
if that were to happen, if that offering was brought. And first, in all three categories, as we heard Wes read, in all three categories, an unblemished ram was brought to the tabernacle for a sacrificial offering. Now, unlike the other offerings, we don't have a lot of description about what took place. We know from uh, places like Numbers and other places exactly what happened. And it was very similar to some of the previous offerings. But because it's not there, we won't go into that detail because there's a specific focus. I think it was not there for a specific reason. And that specific reason is this. Unlike the other offerings, what, what notice if you notice as he was reading, what was different is there wasn't an option For someone who couldn't afford a ram. And that's because the value of the ram was the point of the offering. If something else had been offered, the point would have been missed. The the point was the costly nature of the ram. The more serious or significant the sin, the larger and more expensive the ram needed to be. And what's interesting is the value wasn't determined by the individual who brought it. The value was determined by the priest. The sanctuary shekel was used. And the sanctuary shekel was used because it was heavier than the shekels that were used outside of the tabernacle. And so the point was the satisfaction and repayment of sin wasn't determined by man's weight and measure. The repayment of sin was determined by God's weight and measure. God was owed for the debt man had incurred and needed to be paid back. And every ounce and every penny of that debt needed to be repaid. Well, second, in the first and third categories, I've already mentioned there wasn't a restitution in the second. But in the first and third categories... Not only was restitution made to God, but it was also made to the individual who was sinned against. So in the first case, because the priest who was the one that was affected, right? Because the priest would have been the one who would have received the grain, who would have received the meat and so forth. And so if that wasn't there, they would have gone without, even though we know that there were enough sacrifices going on that they were not going to be without. But the, the, the point is that they didn't have what they were supposed to have. Uh, through the through the individual, that individual was to bring what they had failed to bring and add twenty percent. There was interest accrued on the debt. In the last case, in the third case, whatever had been stolen or defrauded had to be given back, as well as twenty percent. Another, uh, the interest rate on the debt that had not been paid had to be paid. And, and this was a much better deal. 20% was a much better deal. Because if you came to a place of understanding and realizing your guilt, confessed your sin, and brought the offering, you only paid 20% interest. But if you hadn't realized your guilt, or if you refrained from confessing your sin, and someone brought you to court, not only would you have to pay the debt, but the interest rate was anywhere between 200 and 500%. So there was a benefit, not only forgiveness, but there was the added benefit of paying the lower interest rate. The debt had to be canceled. The bottom line is the debt had to be canceled. Payment had to be made. And those offended or affected had to be satisfied. 
And when the sacrifice had been made and restitution had been given, forgiveness was offered. So let's, let's think of the implications. What is it, what are the desired outcomes as we study this passage, as we look closely at this passage, what are the desired outcomes for us today? What, what should we pray for in response? There are three that I would like us to consider tonight. First, I I would pray that we would realize the guilt we incur for our sin. I pray that we we would... Consider and realize the guilt that we incur for our sin. You you and I are sinners. We sin. And we sin. When we sin, we sin against a holy God. And that means that these the the sins that we commit and and the sin that is a part of us, when when we actively disobey or when we passively disobey, when we don't do what we should and we and we do what we shouldn't. These things are not just slight indiscretions. Now, I said this last week. These aren't, they're, not, they're not mistakes. We need to realize and consider that they're offenses. They're acts of treason. They're acts of covenant unfaithfulness. The language in the passage is they are breaches of faith. And that and they render us guilty legally. The gavel comes down, we hear the words guilty, and that status of legal guilt rightfully leads us to emotional guilt. It rightly leads us to emotional guilt. And we experience that in varying degrees. We feel things like blame and inadequacy. We feel things like failure and disapproval. And again, rightly so. And there are three things, there there are three choices that we really have to make when we feel those things. When we realize the state of our guilt or when we feel that guilt within us that points us to the reality of our of our legal guilt, there are three choices that we have to make. And the first one is that we can attempt to eliminate that guilt by ourselves in our own work, trying to merit that removal. What I was attempting to draw with the children, parents, I'm sorry, I've left you a a task, but it's what I was attempting to draw. We sin to use that accounting language We work really hard hoping that we can do enough good things that we can put enough or add enough assets to our ledger that they will outnumber our sins or our liabilities. And we, because we want to be in, for you accountants, we want to be in the black with God, not in the red. And we, and we work tirelessly to make that happen, somehow hoping that that the that the good will outweigh the bad. But the reality is, in regard to our justification, even our again, as I was trying to explain to the children, even our attempts 
As far as our salvation and justification is concerned, our good works, Isaiah says, are filthy rags. They're unclean. And and what happens is, as we try to work harder and harder and harder to, to bring the scales into balance and put them in our favor, all we're doing is tilting the scales back in the direction of sin because it's just adding debt upon debt upon debt upon debt upon debt. And so in the, in, the, in the end, and if you've tried to do this or are trying to do this, you understand in the end, all we feel is exhaustion. We feel frustrated and hopeless. That's the first choice. The second choice is we can simply wallow in our guilt. We don't want to work really hard, so we're just going to lay down and we're going to lay and roll around in our blame and in our inadequacy and in our failure and in our disapproval. And we're going to wallow in our inability to change. But where does that lead? It leads to hopelessness. So our first two options lead to hopelessness. What is our third choice and what are, where does it lead? The third choice is to own our guilt. And not just own our guilt, but to own it and confess it. Own it and admit it. We are sinners. We sin. And we are therefore guilty as charged. And we need help because there is nothing for us to do. There is nothing we can do to erase our debt. There is nothing we can do that's good enough to tip the scales in our favor to somehow please the Lord. It requires that we take our eyes off of ourselves and put them on something else. And better than something else, we're to take our eyes and put them on someone else. And that leads to the second implication. Brothers and sisters, I pray that we would look to the Lord Jesus and rejoice and revel in the fact and in his sacrifice, in the fact that his sacrifice paid our debt. Rejoice, rejoice and revel in the fact that Christ has paid our debt. God, God doesn't simply write off our debt as a loss at the end of the year. I've already said he's just. The debt has to be paid. And I hope what I'm about to say doesn't get old, but Christ has paid it for us. Christ has paid it for us. And this is the fifth week in a row that I've been able to say, and I'll continue to to remind us that we didn't come ram in tow today. We, We didn't come with the ram under the arm or depending on your sin. You might have been dragging it behind you because it was too big to carry. We didn't come with a ram because the Lord Jesus was the full and final and complete guilt offering that we would ever need. He was that guilt offering. The satisfaction or repayment of our sin debt, remember, wasn't determined by our weight and measure. It was determined by God's weight and measure. And every ounce, every penny of what we owed God for... What we owed in terms of our debt, including the interest, had to be paid. We couldn't do it, but Jesus did it through the death, through his death on the cross. 
We needed an eternal, infinite sacrifice to pay for an eternal and infinite debt. And that's why, brothers and sisters, on the cross, what was his statement? It is finished. Paid in full. God the Son emptied himself, took on flesh that he might dwell among his people. And he, as the God-man, lived a perfect law-abiding life and willingly laid down his life for us to pay the debt for every past, present, and future sin that we would ever commit. Every past, uh, present, and future sin of His people that He came to save. Listen to these words of Isaiah 53 that we studied back at Christmas. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He put Him to grief when His soul makes an offering for guilt. Makes an offering for guilt. He shall see His offspring. He shall prolong His days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. Out of the anguish of His soul, He shall see and be satisfied. By His knowledge shall the righteous one, My servant, make many to be accounted righteous, justified, declared not guilty. And He shall bear their iniquity. Christ was our guilt offering. When we look to Him in faith and trusting, and we were trusting in Him and His payment for our debt, we were declared not guilty. His death was payment for our sin. The liability of our sin and our debt was wiped clean. But more than that, right? We we didn't just we were not left with this blank ledger. He added His righteousness to our account. His complete and perfect infinite obedience was credited to us. His assets are now our assets. Our liabilities are His liabilities. And that means He dwells with and fellowships with us and we with Him. Our legal guilt is gone. Our emotional guilt should be laid to rest. And gratitude takes its place. Gratitude takes its place. Which leads me to the last implication. I pray that we would remember the parameters of making restitution. We need to to remember the parameters of making restitution. Out of gratitude for our debt being paid, we should do well to consider... We should consider making restitution when possible. In other words, we need to pay back what we've stolen. Uh, we, need to be, uh, we need to pay back what we've gained by cheating. That which we've found that's not ours, that somebody comes to claim, we need to give it to them. And if we've borrowed something and it's broken, rather than hide it, Fix it and give it back. And if you've borrowed something and forgot, and every time you see it on the shelf, rather than say, I'll do that tomorrow, get it and take it back. 
Because repentance is, uh, sorry, restitution is fruit of repentance. That's an Old Testament principle as well as a New Testament principle. And Zacchaeus is a perfect example of that. And let me add too, if someone comes, if someone comes to you and say, hey, you know, I borrowed this um, and I need, I need to give it back. Uh, and I'd like to you know, give you a gift card as well. You are free. Now, you're obligated to forgive. If they come seeking your forgiveness, you're obligated to forgive. But you are free to either accept that or not accept that, that payment back. If you simply want to s- simply forgive and say, that's all right, just keep it. I got another one. Or just keep it. I don't need the gift card or whatever. You're free to do that. You're also free to forgive and to take what's been being offered. But let me also say this. We need to admit that in many, if not most cases, that the damage we do and that is done to us cannot be paid back. What I mean is that restitution can't be made because there is no way for you and I to determine... There's no way for anyone to determine how many good thoughts it would take to repay a bad thought. There's no way we can determine how many good words would pay back a negative word that we've spoken. There's no way that we can say, well, if I just say these five positive things to my wife, it'll make up for this one really lousy thing I said yesterday. It doesn't work that way. And vice versa, by the way. And truthfully, a price for restitution cannot be placed at all and even thought about in regards to some certain sins that have been perpetrated against us. Or I should say, against you. So restitution can always be be provided or be given by the one who's committed the sin. Most of the time, it must be paid by the one against whom it was committed. Most of the time, it must be paid by the one against whom it was committed. Most of the time, brothers and sisters, we have to eat the debt. We have to eat it. We forgive And pay back the debt ourselves for those who cannot pay us back. We don't hold their sins against them, even if they are against us. We don't do that by, and we do that by trusting in the mercy and grace of God, resting in Him alone. And truthfully, we're only able to do that because we have been forgiven by Him in the same way. How is that so? We have been forgiven by Jesus. For the sins that we have committed against Jesus. He took on our debt and our debt was committed. Our debt was amassed. Our debt is amassed through sins that we commit against him. Breaches of faith. And so having been forgiven... We're called to forgive and return. It is is fruit of repentance.
And thanks be to God that he provides for us that which we need to do and he has called us to do. That being said, let's prepare for the Lord's table. Father, um, these are weighty matters.